This podcast contains explicit material. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Joy of Text, a monthly podcast about Judaism and sexuality. Coming up, a discussion about sexual fantasy. I feel like fantasies are really central to people's sex lives, especially long-term sex lives. Then we'll hear from Hannah Barg and Noah Fleischacker, co-hosts of the podcast Tight Lift. There's something about hearing another voice articulate what you've been experiencing that truly makes you feel less isolated. And of course, the final word. Stay tuned for the joy of text right after this quick word from our sponsor. At Maze Health, we know that if you're having sexual problems, it can have a significant impact on your life and on your relationship. We also know that these problems are not all in your head, and it's important for you to know that pain, low libido, erection, or orgasm problems can all be successfully resolved. Maze is the only treatment center of its kind in the area, addressing both the physical and emotional sources of sexual difficulties. If you're a man or a woman experiencing sexual problems, please don't go another day feeling like there is no solution. Visit us at www.mazehealth.com. Welcome back to The Joy of Text. I'm Sarah Rosner-Lawrence, and I'm here with Dr. Batsheva Marcus, Clinical Director of Mays Women's Health, and Rabbi Dov Windsor, Rosh Hashiva and President of Yeshiva Chovei Torah. Hi. Hi, Hi there. And I have to remind everybody to follow me at Dr. Batsheva. <laughs> I know. It's getting really irritating. <laughs> Not at all. I'll start doing plugs next time. Yes, you definitely. Well, when you go on social media, we'll all follow you. There you go. Okay. So our topic for today is sexual fantasy. And now, this was actually the topic of the first ever Joy of Text episode way back in 2015, sadly before my time. Um, but we basically- You were like 10? <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> guys. Okay. But basically, we just wanted to take a fresh look at the topic and address it again, kind of looking at some facets that weren't really addressed in that first episode and just kind of continuing the conversation about what I think is just a really central topic. Right. So I felt strongly about doing this topic because I feel like fantasies are really central to people's sex lives, especially long-term sex lives. I feel like this comes up so often, the concern about fantasizing, both for my religious patients and my not religious patients. Most couples who have been having sex for more than, let's say, two years or three years are going to hit this one way or the other, either because they should be fantasizing because it makes sex more interesting and it allows their sex life to take all kinds of different directions. But also I feel like people have so much trouble with this. So from my non-religious patients, I get this idea like, oh my God, I feel guilty that somehow I'm thinking about somebody besides my spouse. And from my religious patients, I hear, oh my God, is halakhically major issues with the fact that I'm thinking about somebody besides my spouse. So I can start talking about the fact that, why well, I don't think it's a problem from a moral and ethical perspective, but do you want to say something from the, you know, halakhic piece first, though? Sure. Um, so there's a passage in the Talmud, in Nidarim, that says that a man is not allowed to drink from one cup while placing his eye, while looking at another cup. Um, and obviously it means he's not allowed to have sex with his wife while thinking about another woman. Um, and it, <laughs> you, are, you don't like obviously. the metaphor? <laughs> obviously. It was clear from context. It was clear from context. Well, it says even if both of them are his wives. So there you go. Uh, it's clear. Even it's almost, better. It's, it's almost, it's basically explicit. So that seems to say exactly that this type of scenario is a problem. But here's the big but. 
it seems that if you actually look at it more closely and you look at what the commentators say, uh, I don't think that it relates to the type of fantasy that you're talking about. There's good evidence that, at least for many commentators, it means that a person is not supposed to be using their wife as a stand-in for the woman they really want to be having sex with. And I think you see that already a little bit in the language of Yitain Enough should not be placing his eye, which really means like focusing on desiring a different woman. It does not just mean sort of fantasizing, but maybe it'd be helpful. So I I can quote some sources that make that point, but maybe it'll be helpful, Bacheva, for you to address that reality. Like why is it not cheating on your husband or on your wife to be thinking of someone else. So I know I've probably made this point in other episodes, but I think the most important thing for people to realize is that when you're thinking about somebody else, you're thinking about a fictional person. Even if you're thinking about a real person, it's a fictional person because that may be a real person that you have seen on television or have seen at, you know, you're at a workplace meeting or something. So they're real on a certain level, but the fantasy you have about having sex with them does not include the fact that you come home every day to them. They don't do the dishes when they say they're going to do the dishes. They don't pick up their socks that they're dropping on the floor, right? You have taken this element of this person and you have distilled it down to the pieces of the person and the elements of the person that turn you on or that will turn you on. And that is why it's not really a real person that you're having sex with. It's a fantasy of a person. Even if it is, that's why I laugh a little bit when somebody says like, if I have a fantasy about a fictional character, everybody you're having a fantasy about is a fictional character. Even if it's somebody that you kind of know socially, again, you have just turned them into this fantasy character for you to have sex with them. That's number one. Number two is, and I've said this also for sure before, you are making the decision to have sex with this person who is in the room with you. And so if you have a fantasy character in your head, it's because you are using that person. You are using that person in order to have sex with this person, right? So who's getting used, right? It's the fantasy character, not the person you're actually having sex with at the moment. And I think that becomes really a really important lesson for people. I had this one patient once not that long ago who it was just so good because it was so distilled where she she started crying when we started talking about it. I asked if she thought about other people when she was having sex. And she said she does, but she feels terribly guilty about it. And I said, well, why do you feel guilty about it? And she said, well, because then I think my husband must also be thinking about other women and that makes me feel terrible. And I was like, okay, it makes you feel terrible because you think he should only be thinking about you and you should be the only thing that ever turns him on. And so she's sort of nodding through her tears. And I, I knew she had this you know, grown up daughter. And I said, your daughter, she's in a relationship now. Do you want for the rest of her life to only be thinking about this one man? And she sort of looked at me and she started laughing. She was like, not really. And I said, and her boyfriend, do you want, if she gets married, do you want her husband to only be thinking about her for the rest of his life? He should only be thinking about her as the only thing that turns him on is this young woman. And she said, well, oh my God, I think you'd be a sociopath if that was the case. And I was like, yeah, you think? So it was so much easier for her to see this with her daughter and her daughter's you know, boyfriend. We had these kind of crazy romanticized views that as soon as you sort of put them under a microscope do not make any sense at all. So I think if we like are a little kinder to ourselves and say like, this is really unrealistic. Your erotic brain likes new things. It doesn't like repetition. Repetition is not erotic, right? Road, familiar, tends to not be erotic. So how do you bring the new in to your relationship? And you want to have a good sexual relationship with this person for like, you know, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And the best and easiest way to do that is to use fantasies. So I'm like a big proponent of fantasies and I 
I really feel like people need to like lighten up on themselves a little bit. Now, I will say my only caveat is if there is somebody that you know and you keep fantasizing about that same person again and again and again and you're not feeling good about your current relationship, that's already a different story and that's a problem. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about most people who like are thinking about a movie star or like an idea of somebody, you know, or a, you know, a baseball player or whatever, a teacher. So what if somebody, you know, sees someone at work, gets really turned on and comes home, let's say a man comes home and has sex with his wife and doesn't like wants to keep his eyes closed while he's having sex with his wife. So he doesn't, he could be thinking of this person and not his wife. Well, he's still choosing to have sex with his wife. Well, he's married and this other woman is married too. Like sometimes we're not making that choice actively. Those are the circumstances we're stuck it, in. But we are, well, that's a funny way to put it. <laughs> like, but somebody I might feel that, that way. Okay. So that's what I'm saying to you. If you, there's a problem in your relationship that right. this seems like an ongoing problem, then yes, I think that has to be addressed. But let us let me reframe that. Like he sees this woman, he gets really turned on, and he like uses that in order to have great sex with his wife. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like what difference does it make if he's, you know, if the vision he has in his eyes, you know, 20 minutes, you know, or 20 seconds before orgasm is sort of blurring between this woman and his wife. It's great. Now those pleasurable feelings have now connected with his wife, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? If he's constantly fantasizing about this woman and he's having issues with his wife and he feels stuck, which is what you said, this is what he's stuck with, like just that language. Like, I feel like that's where the change has to happen. Stop Mm -hmm. saying this is what you're stuck with. This is what you're, you're using erotic Mm -hmm. energy that you pick up from other parts of your life and you're bringing it back into your marriage. Mm -hmm. I think that's a much more sort of positive way to look at it. Mm -hmm. Is Sarah looking horrified? No, no. Okay, fine. Not (laughs) at all. I'm I'm just wondering if we could broaden the conversation a little bit because right now it sounds like both of you are talking just about fantasizing about another person or like imagined character or whatever. I'm also wondering your thoughts about just fantasizing in general, like maybe fantasizing like during the work day about having a new type of sex with mm-hmm. your spouse or, you know, just kind of like having fantasies about sex, like not not while you're having sex. So I didn't raise that because like why would that be a problem? Like in other right. words, I feel like the only thing that comes up in my mind is a halachic problem is the one fantasies are great. Every mm-hmm. kind of fantasy all the time is great. <laughs> the only one that people seem to have a lot of problems with are when it involves thinking about somebody other than your partner. I don't know though. I mean, I feel like there's like and during rabbi, intercourse, well, during, during any intercourse. kind of sex. No, but during the day, if somebody's getting turned on by somebody, um, so, yeah, no, people probably feel guilty about that's that. True. Also, that's true. Right. I'm well. Also, I mean, this might be coming from my own misinformation, but isn't there an idea of like hirhurim? Yes. Like kind of just this like negative idea of like fantasizing about sex maybe while you're learning Torah or like, or maybe just in general, like we're not supposed to. Think know, about sex. Ha- having yeah. our thoughts, our mouth, like our <laughs> eyes and our hearts, like go after Hirhurim or Right. Whatever. So Rav Moshe sort of divides it into two categories. One is to have, to really plan to do a sin, like to plan to commit adultery, like, uh, you know, very intentional. So that's uh, put that aside. The other one is, you know, men having sexual thoughts, which can lead to seminal emission, you know, lead to masturbation or actually sinning in a worse way. I was once teaching this text about the problem about Hirhurim and a married man whatever man looking at a woman sexually and the student who I the I mean it was a married guy I was teaching it to and he said to me what does it matter where you get your appetite as long as you come home to eat so mm. well, <laughs> which I, I think, thought was exactly, that's exactly what, what, what I'm saying, saying. Well, like in a less like <laughs> no, elegant yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. So, and the Gemara actually tells a story once about Rava that uh, saw a woman in the base medrash, or not base medrash, coming to the court and had this powerful desire for her and then ran home and had sex with his wife. So as a way of... And that's you know, great. Yes. And that was considered a good thing. <laughs> right. So that's it. We can stop the episode right here because that's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Like... Yeah, but the, from the Gemara, it's not clear if like he had to do that because that was the only legitimate outlet, or like otherwise he'd masturbate. Is or, that what you're saying? Right, or actually commit adultery, or who knows but what. The, but the Gemara didn't think that he was doing something wrong, wrong. Wrong, right? Right. So I feel like that's great. I need to yeah. take that Gemara and put that in my pocket. Okay. Because <laughs> I just, yeah. I will give you that source. Right. So I'm just super interested in like how I feel like this topic really intersects with a bunch of different topics we've done in the past, like male masturbation, female masturbation, because when we're talking to single people or when we're talking to high school students, um, I feel like there is, and maybe this is just, again, because I'm coming from a more kind of like centrist orthodox background, but I I feel like there is a kind of rhetoric of like, oh, don't like, it's not good to be thinking about sex so much. That's so interesting. And then now, as soon as people get married, we're like, great, fantasize. And not only that, but that kills me me because I feel like I spend half my life trying to teach women Mm -hmm. to use that part of their brain. Like, I feel like when you shut down that part of your brain, that part of your brain just stops functioning and you need that part of your brain. And so I feel like that kills me that they're shutting down the erotic fantasy part of people's yeah. brain. And the Hirhurim really is, I mean, halachically, I'm not saying culturally, culturally clearly it gets said to women as well, but halachically it's really about men because it's a concern about masturbation. So, you know, the Hirhurim for women is not really a concern. Basically, you know, Rav Moshe pretty much says that women can masturbate. I think we've discussed the shuv in a previous time, but yeah. there's no concern about zera levatala, about the wasting of semen and so on. So it is much more of an issue for men, although clearly you got that message as well. Yeah, I got that message as well. But anyway, yeah, so so it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that the issue of hirhurim is more connected to the possibility of either having a forbidden type of sex or masturbating and spilling seed right so like in the context of marriage then or if you're a woman it's fine to have hirhurim because there's an appropriate outlet for that yeah the gemara even says it's mutter lahar her biishto so a man can actually have sexual thoughts about his wife so i would i would would hope so (laughs) well i mean i think it means even if he's walking in the marketplace or something yeah i would hope so too no the chiddush is even if he's a nida we're not afraid that Uh. he's gonna violate the laws of nida just because he's thinking about his wife sexually but the Talmud would definitely have a problem with, I think, in the bedroom, it's one thing, or if a chance encounter which turns somebody on, what are you going to do about it? But for a man in the middle of the day to be fantasizing about someone that isn't his wife, you're right, that would be a hearing problem, according to the Talmud. Meaning in like a very focused, right. like meditative uh, type uh, of active right. way. Right. It's not like somebody walks in front of me and all of a sudden, what do, what do I do? I have a fleeting thought. But you know, but to somebody to sit around and be fantasizing about a woman other than his wife, that would be a hearing problem. Because they're afraid he's going to masturbate. Yeah. As opposed to go home and have sex with his wife. Exactly. I thought for sure you were going to bring up the Rabbi Meir. Who was it who stood outside the mikvah? Rabbi Yochanan, yeah. Oh, Rabbi so, Yochanan. Yeah, so Rabbi Yochanan, thank You're you Rabbi for Yochanan, our favorite character. <laughs> So he would sit outside the mikvah so that women would come and they would see him. And he was very handsome and they would think about him when having sex and with their husbands. And according to the Gemara, the child is impacted by what the husband and wife are thinking about at the time of sex. So the kids would turn out beautiful and handsome because the women would be thinking of Rabbi Yochanan. So of course, here you have an explicit case where women are thinking about somebody else. And I actually want to mention that there's one 
Posek, the Mishnah Halachos, Rav Menasha Klein, that discusses this. A number of poskim discuss this. How is this allowed? And what he basically says, and I'll read you the line, because he references, there's a famous Ibn Ezra that asks this question about lotach mode, don't desire something somebody else has. And he says, how, how are you supposed to control your desires, you know, if you, if you covet something? He says, well, imagine that this thing this person has, or if you desire a woman that she's, that she's a princess and you would never be able to have her. So, you know, you teach yourself to realize that it's just a desire and it's not something you actually realistically can have. So he says that's the type of thing that we're talking about here. He basically is describing if it's a fantasy and not realistic. So the line he says is, he says, the shani hirhur tzadik v'chasid, which is the Rebbe Yochanan case. It's different when you're thinking about that type of person. So he's not doing it for the sake of licentiousness, but for the sake of heaven. And then he says, and go take a look at the Ibn Ezra. So it could be that what he might be saying is what some people say, which is, you know, you're thinking about what a righteous man he was or something, or you're trying to do it. But I think what he's saying is, or I'd like to understand it, that you're not thinking with a desire to have sex with that person, but you're doing it for the right purposes. And then he quotes the Ibn Ezra. I think he's saying it's all just a fantasy. So it's not really a desire to have sex with that person. But it's a desire to get yourself aroused to have sex with the person that you love. Right. Is that what you're saying? Or I'm no, that, well, I, think, I don't know if he would say aroused because he's still thinking about Sadiqim and whatever, but, okay. I, I, but I think that's how well, I you would. You never know what turns somebody uh, on. But that's how, that's how I would extend it. I would definitely extend it. And I think that, that there is a number of postgame that really say, as I said before, that it's really about betrayal. It's when, like, there's a Zohar that sort of emphasizes that you're not doing MS to your wife. You know, you're not being true to her or you're committing adultery a form of like mental adultery and so on. And I think that from all of those, it's very clear that they're talking about when a man is using his wife as a substitute for the woman he wants to be having sex with and that he's cheating on his wife. Right. So you see that sometimes with people who are having kind of sort of what I'd call sort of non-sexual affairs, right? Mm -hmm. There's couples where there's really an entire affair going on, but they haven't slept with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not having sex, but the person may still be having sex with their spouse. So that I do think is a huge, huge problem, Mm -hmm. but that is not what we're talking about in most cases. I want to also switch gears for one second to something like dark fantasies, Mm -hmm. because I feel like women are very scared of dark fantasies. I don't you know, I see men, but not nearly at the rate I see women. And so, you know, this whole topic of fantasies is really near and dear to my heart. I think it's so central and critical to our sexual selves. On Instagram, I do a fantasy Friday. Every Friday, I do a, like a little story about fantasies because I feel like people have to relearn how to fantasize. Anyway, so one of the things I've seen over the years is that women are just scared of their fantasies. Like they think they're weird. Like if they think of their fantasizing about women, for example, but I'm not a lesbian. So what? It's just a fantasy. Like let's just get into our head straight that a fantasy is not real. Like people seem to not get that. It's on a reflection of what you really want to have happen, which goes back to this, like, who are you sleeping with? It's not even like, you know, an unknown desire that's really living there. It's just a fantasy. Like we need to like learn how to embrace fantasies. And so if you want to have, imagine having sex with a Martian and five monkeys and whatever, mm-hmm. you know, go for it because like whatever makes the sex better for you, it's just what's, it's what your brain turns on. Specifically, I think women are scared of dark fantasies. This idea of being taken, mm-hmm. like being taken by a stranger or somebody who comes through the window. Like 
many, many women. This is a classic fantasy of women. And they don't, they get scared of it because they feel like it's not PC because, oh my God, am I thinking I want to be raped? And that is so, it's, it makes me so angry because it's so counter to what's really happening. Like, I always love this. Like, this is my classic. Like, you're fantasizing about somebody and like, coming in and ravaging you, but you're creating the person, you're telling the person exactly what to say, how to say it, where to say it, when to stop, like exactly who is controlling who in this Mm -hmm. fantasy. But for some reason, it's so scary to women. So if I could get one message out at this point from this, from this episode, it would be like, relax, enjoy your fantasies, work on your fantasies, grow your fantasies. Don't worry that your fantasies are giving you weird messages. Like we're weird. What turns us on is weird. That's fine. Go for it. Right. Yeah. I guess one last question. Um, what tips would you give to people in terms of trying to grow and build their inner fantasy life? Because I feel like that's something no one really teaches and no one really talks about. Watch Rav Yochanan when you leave the <laughs> <laughs> Um That's definitely. No, I feel like reading erotica is extremely helpful as a starting point. And I always say to people, read short erotic stories. Some For some people, watching works better, but for a lot of women, just reading. Or there's actually a new app you can download called Dipsy, D-I-P-S-E-A, which is stories read by actors, sex stories. And they're like all noted as in like, are they heterosexual? Are they group sex? Are they wild? Mm. Are they like... They're very like you can pick what you want to listen to and they're very well done. Listen to stories, read stories, get anything to get your brain going. And then if something turns you on, focus on what it is that turns you on and then expand it. Mm-hmm. So if you read a story and a woman the in the story is being watched through a keyhole and that really turns you on. So then maybe imagine what turns you on more. Like you're on a stage and you're being watched by 50 people or you're in the middle of a street and, you know, whatever it is, take what you find turns you on, pay attention and then expand that in your head. And the idea is to learn how to do this in your brain. The idea is not to need to rely on stories or videos or audios. Mm-hmm, the idea mm-hmm. ideally is to be able to get your brain to be able to flip on and off when you want it. And that's uh, my experience. That's like the best way to do it. I would imagine that reading would be better than listening and watching. Because you can because it create, activates your brain, your creative brain. Totally. And you can, right. right. Like but you have for, to imagine it yourself. Yeah. Correct. And yeah. you can make the person look however you want. For women, audio works really pretty well, is my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, men seem to have a much easier time with the fantasizing. I'm not sure really? what that's about. Yeah. Huh. but And they tend to be more visually, right. you know, the cute visual cues are better. But men, I rarely have a man say to me, it's hard for me to figure out, like, what to think about to turn myself on. Mm. I wonder if it's because of more of a sociological acceptance of, like, men watching porn. So, maybe. like, maybe there's more of, like, a... Or maybe all of that is porn. rooted in the visual... Yeah, I don't know. We'll solve that on another episode. <laughs> yeah. Another follow-up question. Do you think that it's productive to share your fantasies with your spouse? Great Could you comment on that? Great Both question. for the fantasies about other people, which seems a little bit dicier to yes. me, and about what you're talking about now of like actively building your fantasy so life. So I would say – Everybody should have a store of fantasies that are theirs alone. And if they and their partner like to share fantasies, and that can be very helpful for some relationships, pick and choose the ones you share because you there's no reason to sort of upset somebody. And a lot of people, it's really important for people to have their own fantasies. Do not feel like you have to share your fantasies. You are allowed to have a treasure trove of fantasies that are just yours. Like it's important for you to have your own fantasies. 
If you have fantasies you want to share with your partner, that's great. If you and your partner want to come up together with fantasies or listen to, you know, stories together, that's great too. Do I mean like that? And that could be helpful to the two of you, but don't mix up those two things because they are separate. What about sharing with your partner that you that you do fantasize? Like, is that something you say to somebody like, hey, if you're afraid that this isn't being fair to your partner, just tell him that you fantasize and ask him if he does the same. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think you can, but I feel like it's so anybody who has an ongoing sex life, anybody mm-hmm. is fantasizing to some degree, whether they're aware of it or not. So sharing it is almost saying like, I breathe. I mean, I think if your partner says, I want to know what you're thinking about, right. that doesn't seem fair to me. And I don't think neither fair nor particularly helpful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Unless maybe it's like a gentle, like, Oh, tell, tell me like, something that turns you on. Yeah. Like, what do you think about the joint? And then you have a right to think of things that are fun and that you want to share and willing to share. Yeah, right. right. That feels very different to me right. than I want to know what you're thinking about. Right. Absolutely. Right. You know, I want to share some texts that illustrate exactly this point, that the idea of thinking about another woman is only when it's sort of in an adulterous type of way and not as a fantasy way. So first, there's a nice passage from the Zohar, and I'll just read the English. I do, I'm winding up doing a lot of Zohars these days. I don't know why. But it says, regarding the, <laughs> regarding the righteous who know how to sanctify themselves, the verse states, yet I have planted you a noble vine, holy a true seed. What is meant by true? Said Rabbi Acha, true in all matters, that he does not think of another woman doing intercourse with his wife and keeps faithfulness with his wife. So I think that that's talking about, you know, exactly this, that is it a betrayal of the wife or is it something that ultimately is to be with the wife? And I think another source that says this maybe even clearer is this work called Metziat Yitzchak from Rav Yitzchak Ben Ben Sion Zinkin. And he says the following, and I'll just read it in the English. He says, he is like someone who deceives the owner who is thinking about another woman and is not the one flesh that God commanded. In such a circumstance, it is considered a sin. So to me, all of this points to the idea that it's not just the use of a fantasy to make somebody connected to their wife, but it's actually a betrayal of the wife, and it's the substituting the wife for a different woman, imagining that she's a different woman than the one she is. Right. So in other words, you're sort of saying these, the, you're reading these texts as being specifically when somebody is, you know deciding that they really don't want to be having sex with the person they're having sex with. And therefore they're just putting in this other woman as a way to kind of get through the experience. Exactly. But rather than using the other woman to get themselves turned on to have sex with their wife. Exactly. Right. Well, that's a great reading. I'm not sure that's the, you know, (laughs) that's what they actually mean. Yeah. Does that seem like the, the, the plain text, not 100% well, clear to me, but I love it. I don't know. It says better. deceives the owner and yes. not one flesh that God has commanded. So right. that's certainly the way that I'm feels- understanding it. Another text describes it as adulterous thoughts. So again, I'm understanding it that it means that person really wants to be Correct. sleeping with the other person. Right. I feel like adulterous thoughts are like, I really don't want to be having sex with you. Right. I don't want to be having sex with you. I want to be having sex with this person. But I think most people in good, solid marriages wouldn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. I feel I think they'd feel like... Yeah, I like to think about other people, but I'm kind of glad that you're my partner. I love you, and I want to have a long life with you. Right. Right. Thanks so much, guys. Coming up, our conversation with Hannah Barg and Noah Fleischacher. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. With over 125 musmachim in the field, Yeshivat Chovavet Torah is committed to training a new generation of modern Orthodox rabbis. Jason, you're a rabbi in training. What's your perspective? It was precisely the Musmachim of Yeshivat Chov Betara that drew me to the Yeshiva. 
the tremendous diversity of work that they're engaged in, and the underlying love of and commitment to the Jewish people really inspires me. Thanks, Jason. If you'd like to apply or schedule a visit, go to yctorah.org. Today we are joined by Hannah Barg and Noah Fleischacker, co-host of an incredible new podcast about pelvic pain called Tight Lipped. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. I just want to say a word about how this happened, how we are having them join us. So I don't know, maybe six months ago, um, I started getting these alerts. Like people were people sending me emails and stuff about anything new they think I'd be interested in. And so somehow, like four people sent me links to this new podcast, Tight Lipped. And I kind of was rolling my eyes a little bit because, you know, I get a lot of stuff sent to me and a lot of times it's not great. But then I listened to the first one. And first of all, it was so well done. It was so professional. I was so impressed. But then I was really struck because one of the people interviewed was one of your boyfriends, I think. And he was in an apartment in Tel Aviv. So that kind of gave me an at like an initial oh my god something there's something going on here that's a little bit Jewish and then also when you did at the end all the thank yous and the like who recorded you and everything it was like it sounded like Israel's story so I'm like wait a minute so I emailed one of you I think it was Noah um saying this is a great podcast it's a great resource and then we just connected and I think the work you're doing is truly amazing and life-changing for a lot of women. And the podcast itself is so professionally done. So that's how we found Noah and Hannah. So we're really happy you're here. Yeah. So so just, I guess, to start us off, could you guys just tell us a little bit about the podcast? Like, what is it about? How did it get the name Tight-Lipped? Just kind of give us a bit of an overview. Yeah. So the podcast really came out of a lot of different conversations that Hannah and I had over the course of the year that I was going to a lot of different doctors and I have a chronic vaginal pain condition and was seeing all these different doctors and slowly, slowly starting to talk to people about the experiences that I was having. And every time that I would come home and tell a story, to Hannah about what was going on. She was like, we have to make a podcast about this. Like there's so many stories and experiences that you're telling me about that there's just like so much about this experience that we should be sharing with people. And it was kind of like almost a joke between us. Like, oh, one day this will turn into a podcast until I started talking to more and more of my friends and realizing just how common the experiences of having chronic vulvar pain, vaginal pain, pain with sex, like how common those experiences were. And all of a sudden, kind of as I started talking to more and more people, we realized that these weren't just my experiences, but actually like all of these different people in our community and friends and friends of friends and family were having very similar experiences. Um, And so after kind of realizing that, that like these, we weren't alone. (laughs) Um, Hannah and I got serious about deciding to make a podcast. Um, And then the name Tight Lipped really came from, we crowdsourced what we should call the podcast. We actually like put out a survey to a bunch of people and had a lot of different options in it. And someone suggested Loose Lips And that when I saw Loose Lips, I was like, oh, that's not right. But there's something really close that's right. And that's how tight-lipped came to be. That's amazing. 
I'll also jump in and and say <laughs> a little bit about mine and Noah's relationship to each other, which is that at the time that this all started, Noah and I were living together in a co-op in Chicago. And it sort of came out of a conversation that we had while making dinner one night where I mentioned a friend from high school who had vaginismus and and Noah sort of burst out crying. And in the moment, I didn't know why. And, and later, through many conversations, realized that that was the first time she had heard about this thing that that maybe there was a name for what she was experiencing. And just because of who we are and our different backgrounds, my background is as a radio producer and Noah's is as a community organizer. The more we talked to people and heard these stories, the more we were like, this is really problematic. We need to do something about it. And Noah was like, we need to organize people. And I was like, we need to make a podcast. And that's a way to organize people. Um, and that's sort of how it started. And and it also started as a as like a, a a small project, it never really occurred to me how big it might grow or that it might turn into some sort of movement. But it started initially as Noah sending me voice memos on WhatsApp after she went to pelvic floor physical therapy or a doctor appointment. So I have almost a year worth of basically voice memos that Noah sent me. And after that year, we were like, oh, okay, we have a lot of content. There's so many different things that you touched on in your one year this was her first year of trying to seek treatment. Um, and that was really our starting point. You know, in an earlier episode, um, I don't remember if you remember, Dove, but we were talking about the crazy things women are told by their doctors mm-hmm. when they have pelvic pain. And you were like, I don't understand it. How do the doctors not know how to treat right. this? Do you remember? Why not just Google it? Yeah, just Google it. And I said to you that there was, and I remember you said it, what's the average number of doctors a woman sees before she actually gets help when she has pelvic pain? I've heard a lot of different um, statistics. I've heard three to four is kind of the lowest number um, at, that I've heard. And like late, that's supposed to be kind of the major improvement that's happened over the last couple of years is that now it's only three to four. But I've still heard numbers as high as like um, seven to 10. And there was a study done at the University of Minnesota of women who have provoked vestibulodynia, which is a condition um, that causes chronic vaginal pain. And the study was looking at how long it took before the women in the study got diagnoses. And basically over a third of the women in the study went to more than 15 appointments before they were able to get a diagnosis. And it took over a year and a half before they received a diagnosis. Wow. Wow. It's really unbelievable. And it kind of it kind of just highlights like how important the work you guys are doing is because like the the more that this is a conversation in the world, I feel like the more awareness everyone will have about it and like women could start coming to healthcare providers with like a little bit of their own information. What are you hearing back from your listeners? Are you hearing that like this has opened their eyes? Um, that's a really good question. I think we get all sorts of feedback, but a major thing that we hear every single time we release an episode is messages and notes and emails from people saying how seen they feel, which is really moving for us. Um, you know, how they sort of lived in this in this place of like going from doctor to doctor, of probably keeping it a secret for many people in their lives, of having like an immense amount of shame around it. They probably didn't know that statistic that Noah just named, or they might not even know that they're I don't know, are all these trends that, you know, what they were experiencing is actually experienced by millions of other people suffering from this. Um, but I wouldn't say they were surprised. I think they just felt very validated. Noah, do you have anything to add to that? 
Yeah, I mean, if anything, I think people feel surprised by the fact that their experiences are shared by so many people. We've had a lot of people write to us and kind of say, you know, before listening to this, I thought I was alone or I thought that, you know, it was just that I was going to the wrong doctors. You know, maybe I went to a doctor who told me it's all in my head or just drink a glass of wine, you need to relax. And I thought this is my personal problem uh, rather than understanding that there's this broader pattern where so many other people are being told the same thing by the doctors that they're going to. And I think really like some of the like really powerful uh, messages that we've gotten from people are people who said, you know, after listening to the podcast, I told my mom for the first time that I have this condition, or I told my friend, or someone wrote to me and said, I'm going to go back to the doctor um, who didn't take me seriously and try to fight to be taken seriously. Like people who are understanding that there isn't a reason to feel kind of shame or self-blame around the experiences that they're having. I also just wanted to jump in with, like I said, we get all these messages from people. And this is just an iTunes review that we got that is particularly meaningful. This person wrote, listening to this podcast felt like a weight being lifted off my shoulders. There's something about hearing another voice articulate what you've been experiencing that truly makes you feel less isolated. And so while the podcast does serve as an educational tool, I think it's also just to make people feel seen and validated and sort of connect them to a community of people going through the same thing. What do you think sociologically, I, I think about this a lot, and I'm sure you have thoughts about this, a condition which is so common, and we all know that it is really common, and people end up feeling like they're the only ones. And I, you know, I know it's a uniquely women thing, so that may be a piece of it. But there's something that is so confusing to me about how a condition which is so common ends up with people feeling so like they're the only ones with it. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I am still like constantly surprised by that, which is ironic because I was like that <laughs> until like two to three years ago. I literally thought I was the only person in the entire world who had this condition. And I just had no reason to believe that I wasn't because. I'd never seen it like on TV or in a movie or in a book. Um, I'd never come across any articles that like were talking about someone who physically couldn't have penetrative sex out of pain or just like feeling like it was impossible, like never come across that story anywhere. Um, and also, I, I mean, I'm not the type of person who Googles my symptoms. So I hadn't really gone down the internet rabbit hole so much. Um, but I just like didn't even know what words to use to look for it because I, I didn't, I couldn't even really put language to the experience I was having. So I, I mean, if, if I was like that until I was like um, 25 years old, it's it's not that surprising to me that there's so many other people out there. And I think it's some combination of shame and like having a really hard time figuring out how to talk about it and also feeling like if you do talk about it there's so much kind of social pressure stigma like what's going to happen is are you going to be able to date or have a relationship what are your friends going to think of you just like there's so much stigma around what what does that mean and how do you even talk about it for me because I didn't realize there was like a real legitimate kind of medical condition and language to talk about it. I just thought people couldn't possibly like 
I, I mean, not just that people couldn't relate, but just that I didn't have a way of explaining it to anyone else in my life. So I, I do think there's like a, a lot of social and cultural reasons why people think they're alone, even though it's so common. I mean, I think that they are start like it's just it takes years for things to change in the medical field and they didn't understand. I mean, even now we don't have all the answers. We just have answers to specific things and we're much better at it than we used to be. But there's still a lot they don't know. But maybe they're starting to teach in medical school and medical school is so broad. I mean, do you guys have thoughts about that? About why they don't teach about this more in medical school? So I have friends who are in midwifery school and nursing school right now who have said, you know, they learned something about it. Um, and so I think there are people who maybe, you know, learned, you know, maybe they had like a short, less than an hour on what is vulvodynia or vaginismus. But I, my sense is because for gynecologists, the main focus is on reproduction and reproductive health. And there isn't a whole lot of focus on, you know, pain that is not, first of all, pain that is not acute pain, like chronic pain that is recurring and keeps coming back. There isn't a whole lot of focus on that. And there especially isn't a lot of focus on conditions that don't relate to fertility and reproduction and that have to do more with your, with your sexual health or just your quality of life. Yeah. And we also have both spoken to a lot of friends um, who are also in medical school or who are doctors who genuinely care about this issue and about women's pain and women's health and have basically been really honest in saying like, you know, like Noah said, they covered it in, you know, one lesson in an hour maybe because of the amount of information that they need to absorb during medical school. So I told a friend about we're doing a whole season right now about doctor stories. And one of the things that we've done throughout the season is focus on sort of crazy things that people are told when they go to the doctor, sort of like no saying, you know, drink wine, relax. Um, we have some really extreme stories with that. I told her some of them and I told her how, you know, people go to their doctors and they feel like they're not believed. And she's a person that, you know, is really committed to like women's and women's health. And she basically said, you know, I, I wonder if I've done that or if I've done the same thing, like not believed my patients or um, so like I think even the most well-intentioned person can get caught up in, in this cycle of not knowing about it and reinforcing that. Yeah, I, I would also, and we talk about this in the second episode, the episode that's called The Trust Gap, where we talk about this kind of dynamic where often women's pain is not believed or not taken seriously or just seen as something that's kind of imaginary or emotional. And I think the history of hysteria is also still just playing out in the doctor's office and making it hard to talk about pain that might have psychological and emotional elements to it. You know, there's no denying that a lot of these conditions can be exacerbated by stress or anxiety and like impacted by your psychological or emotional state. But there's a tendency to then say like, oh, well, then the pain is emotional or the pain is just because you're an uptight person or you're, you know, you're just anxious rather than saying, oh, there's an underlying condition here and we need to address that even if anxiety also plays a factor. I think also doctors don't like things they can't see. And there are a lot of elements of pain or pain conditions which you don't see. And that's a little bit hard, I think, for physicians. So, I mean, I, I feel like the medical field is better at addressing other kinds of pain conditions, though, like fibromyalgia or it took years. whatever. You know how yeah. many years people were suffering with fibromyalgia before they started taking it seriously? 
Just right. saying. So yeah, yeah. That that reminds me of something that one of the experts we interviewed said to Paula Kamen, who wrote the book All in My Head. She experiences chronic migraines, and she wrote about the history of treating chronic pain for women. And she basically talked about in her book sort of how long it took for even chronic migraines to be seen as, you know, a a chronic pain condition. And then how anything related to the vagina is like the most stigmatized of the chronic pain conditions. And I think that's also why it's taken so long. It's it's not just that it's women and chronic pain, but it's the most stigmatized part of our bodies where that chronic pain is happening. So I'm wondering what is one of the most interesting or the most interesting um, or surprising thing you guys have learned through the process of producing this podcast? I think the craziest thing that I've learned is not so much a statistic or um, what we've learned from a particular expert, but just realizing how widespread these conditions are in our own community. That That's really how the podcast came to be is because every time we would talk to someone of our friends, we would figure out that they also had a chronic or regular pain condition or their moms had a chronic or regular pain condition. And it just keeps happening. You know, we every time we release an episode, a new person comes out of the woodwork that we've known for a really long time. And we keep saying to each other, I thought that we'd already found all the people in our lives that have these chronic pain conditions. And that's just not the case. Like every single time we release an episode, like more people come out and more people come out. And it's just so widespread. And so many of these people have never spoken about it openly. And and that's just really amazing and also upsetting for me. Uh, something that I've been surprised by that I think is very relevant to the work you're doing on your podcast is I've just been curious to see how many people have kind of constructed their own explanations or interpretations of why they have the conditions that they have, especially in the absence of any kind of medical explanation. Um, I actually started calling this the midrash of the pain, which is like when people kind of take this experience of having pain and then map onto it something about their personality or uh, who they are as a person and that as a, like an explanation for why they're in pain. So like, just to be clear about what I mean, I was in this group of women in Israel, all everyone's Israeli except for me, who all have vulvar and vaginal pain. And so many people in the group just had these stories that explained why they were in pain. So like there was one person who was uh, pretty religious and um, kind of talked about how she felt like she didn't play the role that like an ideal bride would play after she got married. And she felt like she had vaginismus because she was like um, somehow rebelling against the stereotype of like an Orthodox Jewish woman and like her body physically was like not letting her do what she was supposed to do as a wife after she got married. And then there was someone who was more secular who described kind of that same experience, only she was like, yeah, vaginismus is like my ultimate feminism. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm like resisting penetrative sex and like that it my body is like embodying my feminist identity and then there were there were people who just had these like stories about why they're in pain and i've just found that like everyone kind of has this story that largely comes from like years of no answers and like trying to make sense of why your body is 
doing this and also trying to like bridge the kind of physical and emotional experience. So that's just been really interesting to me to just like hear from so many different people who have the same conditions, but who have very different explanations or like kind of interpretations that they explain uh, for why they have the condition they have. Yeah. I'm curious how this plays out in terms of the relationship. Like, do these women not go on dates? Do they tell the men that they're going out on dates with, you know, how do they sort of deal with that? I mean, I can understand in a marriage, maybe there's more openness. And I'm wondering if, you know, the guys make them feel even more rejected, like just what that whole dynamic is. Yeah. Like you mean for people who are kind of in the dating world, who are navigating how to talk about it with their potential partners? Yeah. Do they stop dating at all? I mean, how do they handle that? So I don't know if I would say there's any kind of one answer to that. I mean, first of all, we are talking to a lot of people who can have sex. It's it's painful. Um, And some of those people choose not to disclose their pain. And that's something we talked about on our last episode um, that is, I think, a, a very difficult experience of a lot of people who just are continuing to have really painful sex um, despite the pain, either because they think that it will go away and they're hopeful and they just hope that, you know, like maybe this time it will be, it will be different or it won't be as painful or because they just don't, you know, they don't think there is any other option or because like we talked about, a lot of people feel like they're alone and don't really know kind of how to address it and like what they, what to do about it. Um, But I do think there are also people who like who I've I've talked to who are just trying to navigate a relationship um, or dating where they they do disclose it. Some people I've talked to talk about like this being almost like a new metrics or like a new standard for vetting potential partners. Like if they're very upfront about it and the person has a negative reaction, that's a sign that like it's not someone they want to date. I think one of the biggest questions for a lot of people who are dating is like, at what point do you disclose that information? Are you upfront about it from the very beginning? Do you talk about it later on once you're more serious? Like at what point, I think a lot a lot of people who I've talked to really struggle with trying to figure out how to not make that then this kind of condition define them and their sexuality and their sexual experiences. Yeah, I wanted to, I think we've found, yeah, like Noah said, all different answers when it comes to this. Um, There are some people that we've interviewed who are uh, entirely comfortable talking about their, their regular chronic pain. And so they sort of say it from the top and it's sort of not an issue for them when they're dating. And also I think for most people that we've spoken to, there's definitely a very intense process of um, like changing your understanding of what sex looks like. Um, We talked about that in our last episode, that how our society sort of normalizes penetrative sex. And maybe a lot of the people that we speak to sort of have to open their mind when it comes to, you know, how to have a sexual relationship with someone that like this is one thing that they can't do. And there are so many other things that they can do. And I think the other thing that I wanted to add, a lot of the people we've spoken to who are in relationships have people say really terrible things to them like, oh, your boyfriend must be so nice. Like, you know, you're so lucky sort of making it seem as if being in a relationship with that person is really a burden. Um, And But the reality is so many people that we've interviewed are in long-term serious relationships with male partners. And of course, those male partners feel differently about it. But for many of them, it's not an issue. 
Um, and I think that's something that we haven't addressed yet on the podcast, but we'd really like to. Right. In some ways, it could be helpful because in our society, we get so sucked into this like heteronormative intercourse-based sex, which isn't always great for women or men. So it, sometimes it forces people to open up things on the outside. Yeah. So so guys, thank you so much for all of your insights. Last thing I want to ask you, where can listeners find your podcast? They can find the episodes basically anywhere that you listen to podcasts. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. We're on CastBox. Um, you can go to our website, tightlippedpod.com. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Thank, thank you. Because you, you're really doing, you really are doing God's work out there. So go you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You guys are too. Next up, the final word after this quick word from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Rabbi Eliezer Lawrence, and I'm a certified Mohel serving the New York metropolitan area. I work with Jewish families and conversion candidates of all identities, affiliations, and orientations, both within the Orthodox community and beyond. With the sense of uncertainty that we face during this pandemic, you need to feel certain that your baby is in safe hands. My practice is built on ethos of the highest standard of safety and sterility, as well as a deep spirituality for both family and guests. I am proud to have been a key advocate in working with community leadership to ensure clear safety guidelines for Brit Mila during the coronavirus. For more information about me or my practice, you can visit my website, familymohel.com, or give me a call at 201 694 1801. In the meantime, enjoy the podcast, stay safe, and Bisha'atova. So here we are for the final word. Um, so this one is a listener question. This listener says, Hi, great podcast. You guys have really opened my eyes and answered questions that I wouldn't think to ask and didn't even know that I had. My marriage, just like all marriages, has its ups and downs. I find it very challenging to go to the mikvah when I'm upset with my husband. It seems so unnatural and really reinforces the feeling that sex is a woman's duty to her husband. I don't know what the question is here exactly, but I'd love to hear you discuss this topic. Thank you so much. So I, I think we may have discussed this topic, but I will say a very short answer here is I will tell couples very often, just do not assume you have to have sex the night you go to the mikvah. You don't have to have sex, right? Rabbi Linder, you don't That's have to have correct. sex. Don't. Absolutely. So I think as soon as you divorce those two things from each other, it makes the world of difference. And so, you know, if you're feeling angry and you, and and it is such a common thing, like, you know, people say have a fight on mikvah night because it, the pressure is just so overwhelming. So whether or not it's because of that, just don't even think about it. You're going to the mikvah because it's something you do. You're going to the mikvah so that you can now hold hands and touch each other when you want to. And when you're ready to have sex, you will have sex. My experience is that once you take the sex piece away from it, often couples are really kind of happy to climb into bed together and then they often end up having sex. So, but really you're not unusual. You're not alone and you do not have to have sex and it's not a crazy feeling. So go with that. Right. I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. I really think that like, ha like having mikvah night be uh, so attached to sex really just creates this undue pressure that can't be good for anyone. So yeah, hundred percent. Okay. okay. Thanks All right. so much guys. Another Thank great you. episode. <laughs> Thank you so much to our guests, Hannah Barg and Noah Fleischacker. 
This episode of The Joy of Text was recorded by Mike Hurst, was produced and edited by Max Hollander, and is a project of the Lindenbaum Center at YCT. If you have questions or comments you'd like to share with us, you can do so anonymously at www.thejoyoftext.org. The Joy of Text is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. If you like what you hear, show your support for us by giving us a five-star rating and stay up to date with our latest episodes and live events by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. 